Well, welcome to Sojourn in this building for the last time. We're going to end it the way we started it, by opening up God's Word. We've never been much about production here. Uh, you likely are here because of some sort of thing that we do up here in terms of production, screen, music, sound, uh, preaching, even any of those things. You're, you're likely not here for that, and if you are, we're probably disappointing, especially today, without even a screen to look at. But my guess is that you're here because we, we go to this Word, and it's living and active, and it's hard to describe how much we love this Word. Um, and so we, we are really, really thankful that we don't have any production at all, but we have God's Word. Like we, have, we have enough right here if we're the people of God gathered together with the Word of God in front of us. And so with thanks, one more time in this building, we, we get to open it up together. So if you have a Bible, turn to the book of Galatians. We're in Galatians chapter 2 this morning. And hear the living, breathing, active Word of God together as the people of God. Paul says, as he's carried along by the Spirit, starting in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Then after fourteen years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. And I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that we might, so they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me, God shows no partiality, those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go on to the Gentiles and they... To the circumcised. Only they asked to us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word to us together as we gather together this morning. Help us to listen well to your authoritative word that is in front of us. And God, we pray that faith as it comes by hearing would come to us and we built in those who are believers and would come to those who are unbelievers uh, in the hearing of your word. Thank you for it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. There is a, uh, maybe the, the most popular personality of kind of my era of baseball, which would have been kind of 90s, early 2000s, was a man named Manny Ramirez. You might remember him. He played for the Boston Red Sox. He was a, a fantastic hitter, not a great fielder, but it didn't really matter because he could hit well enough that it didn't really matter what he did out in the field. And so Manny Ramirez was an interesting character, though. He, he's probably one of the most interesting personalities of baseball at the time, but, but maybe ever. He did some really strange things. There's, there's all sorts of Manny Ramirez moments, and so it, they, they kind of coined this phrase, that's just Manny being Manny. So you might have heard that. You can look it up on Google, and they will tell you all the greatest Manny being Manny moments. One of them was when he, he catches a fly ball in the outfield. He, so he's running and catches this fly ball, and he... He, he takes a few extra steps and jumps up on the wall and gives the guy a high five before he then turns around and throws the ball back in to, to get another guy out. 
This is just some of the stuff that, that he did. He would often, he played in, in Boston, so he had the, the, the big monster, the green monster behind him. He would often just disappear into this thing. Some door he had out there, he would just go into it in between innings, in between pitches. If there was a timeout or something, he would just go in there and sometimes just reappear, maybe perhaps as the pitch is being thrown. He was an interesting character, and so they, it coined this phrase, that's just Manny being Manny. He's just being this strange, kind of eccentric personality. That's just what he does. Now, if you, if you remember the, the end of, of chapter 1 and all of chapter 1 in Galatians, you heard some sharp words from Paul. He even says stuff like, let them be accursed a couple different times. And what you could get away with, if you're the, the opponents of Paul in Galatians, the churches of Galatia, you could just say, well, you know what? Paul's kind of out on a limb here, and that's just Paul being Paul. Right? You don't hear that from anybody else. It's just Paul. He's, he's kind of an eccentric guy. He likes to get worked up about certain things. That's just Paul being Paul. We don't need to give that any sort of weight or second thought because that's just what he's like. And the question that we need to ask is, is was it? Is chapter 1, is Paul saying these, these kind of sharp words, these harsh things? Was that just Paul being Paul? I think Paul builds his case starting in chapter 2. Uh, for them to not only to return to the gospel, he's been building that all along, but he's going to affirm it and support it here that th this is more than just Paul saying this. So he's building his argument, calling everybody, especially his opponents and those in the churches of Galatia, to recognize the authority of his gospel, to recognize the authority of his ministry. This isn't just Paul out on a limb, just being Paul, that this is affirmed and supported not just by Paul, but by the other apostles that were in Jerusalem. And he would say then, from that point on, we know this gives further affirmation that this is the truth of God. This is God's gospel. And so Paul wrote in Galatia, to the churches of Galatia, to keep them from deserting the gospel because they were heading down a path that was going over the cliff. They were deserting the gospel, and he wants to stop them from doing that. They had accepted a false gospel to some degree that said something like, you have to have Jesus and something else, namely, at least in Galatia, circumcision. But Paul is insistent that there is only one gospel, and nothing can be added to it or taken away from it, and it still be the gospel. If you do any of those things, then you're taking away the actual gospel. And he puts instead saying that the gospel is only this, that we are justified, that we are made right in God's sight, that we have right standing and acceptance before him, not based on anything that we can do, but based on our faith in Jesus alone. So, so it's, it's by faith alone that we are justified, not faith in Jesus plus being circumcised or plus the observance of the law. This is it. It's only in Jesus. And this gospel, he's going to tell us in chapter 2, was affirmed by those in Jerusalem. And so he appeals to his visit that he went into Jerusalem to give weight to his words to these people in Galatia, that they would return and recognize his gospel as the gospel. So chapter 2, he tells about the second visit where he goes to lay before the, the influential, he calls them in Jerusalem, the gospel that he had proclaimed. So we see in verse 1 and 2, he tells them that after 14 years... He goes up again to Jerusalem. He takes Barnabas and Titus with him. And he goes up because of a revelation that was set before, before him. And he, came and he gives them this gospel kind of privately. And he, he tells them, I'm going to give them the gospel that I proclaim to the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running in vain. This is the second visit that Paul has made to Jerusalem. The first visit he talked about in chapter 1 was a brief visit. It was after three years after his conversion. He makes a brief visit about a couple weeks to Jerusalem, and then he's back again. And this one is the second visit after 14 years. So, so Paul's norm in his ministry, in his life, was to travel around to strategic cities and proclaim the gospel. He's been doing this for 14 years, planting churches, appointing elders, going about this, this ministry of the gospel. 
And his gospel and his ministry are well established at this point. So the question is, why after 14 years of this, do you go up to Jerusalem now? And he says that that I was directed to do so by a revelation. And in other words, God had directed him by some means to go to Jerusalem at this time. And it makes sense. The the intensity of the the circumcision controversy in the churches of Galatia, and we know that this is not the only place that this controversy was being faced, it were huge. And the implications of this controversy and the implications for, for Gentiles and Jews all around, all over the place, this was such a big deal that it makes sense for, for Paul to go to Jerusalem and get on the same page or at least affirm that they are on the same page. Because there are many becoming believers, Jews and Gentiles, all over the place. The numbers are growing. And so they need to work out what, is the, what does the law have to do with the gospel? What about circumcision and the gospel? How do these work together? This is a pressing issue. And the nature of this visit is to set before them this gospel, set before the influential the gospel he proclaimed. So Paul had this this really cutting edge, this really super spiritual approach to ministry that he practiced for 14 years. And he sets it before them. And what does he say? He sets before them the gospel that I proclaim. So Paul, the super spiritual guy, here's what he does. He goes and he proclaims the gospel. And here's what he wants to go check with the, the people in Jerusalem the, the gospel that I'm proclaiming, that's the, the, the ministry that I'm doing, is a gospel that they would affirm and be on board with as well. This was the center of his ministry, and it should be the center of, of every ministry. I, I'm guessing that, that they, it's, it's possible they talk technique, like, well, how do, you, how do you do your introductions, Paul, when you come to a city? Like, it's possible they talked about church planning strategies, like should you go to this city or maybe this city be more strategic. But, but no mistake here is that the focus of their meeting was the gospel, and that was the focus of his ministry and of his life. Paul knows that if he's off here, then the ramifications are, are massive. If you're off on the gospel, you're departing from God is what he said in chapter 1. You have no real ministry. And so I think we, we do well, as, as Paul does, to, to kind of evaluate our lives and our ministry individually as a, as a body of believers to make sure that the gospel is the center. That the gospel proclamation is at the heart of, of everything that we do and of all that we are. And that that gospel that we proclaim is right. We're not always about getting things right. It's more important to love often than to get things right. But the gospel we need to get right. And getting the gospel right is critical to Paul and To us, it ought to be a matter of life and death. The gospel that says that you can have life with God based on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We need to get that right because it both forms us. It creates us. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. We don't have new creatures in Christ apart from the proclamation of the gospel. It forms us. It brings us together as a body and it fuels us forward. We don't just pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and move forward according to whatever we think is best try to do our best. No, we're fueled by grace. We're accepted and we obey. It's the basis. The gospel is the basis of our standing with God. Departure from it is to depart from God. And so we get the tremendous blessing of being able to evaluate our gospel and our teaching and our lives and our ministry according to God's word written down for us. And that's what Paul's visit helps us with. He's going to evaluate it. We get all of that recorded for us so that we might do it too. But we also get the, the tremendous blessing of one another, of God's people with various gifts Various body parts helping one another to come to this completion, to be complete. These are the necessary guardrails that we need if we are going to rightly keep the gospel central and make sure that the gospel is right. But you still got to wonder, why is the Apostle Paul, after 14 years of gospel ministry, 
Why is he concerned, as he says he is here, about running in vain? 14 years, and now it seems like he's concerned. What's going on here? It's clear from Paul that distorting the gospel would be running in vain. But, but is that really Paul's worry? Is he worried that he has distorted the gospel in 14 years of ministry? He seemed absolutely sure of the gospel in chapter 1, so much so that he said, if anyone preaches another gospel, let them be accursed. Even if me or somebody else does that, let them be accursed. So he seems like he was pretty sure of his gospel, and he continued proclaiming it for 14 years. And so why does he think that it's possible that he was running in vain? I think we need a little help from Batman here. According to the Dark Knight trilogy, Batman that is, Gotham City was a place that was, it was full of crime, organized crime. At every level of government, every level of the city, rich, poor, top to bottom, was completely corrupted, full of crime, run by mob bosses, corrupt at every level until Batman steps in, Bruce Wayne. Steps in as this, this mass vigilante bringing justice to the city of Gotham, taking out bad guys left and right by himself, like appearing in the night and disappearing before they even know where he is and where he's come from. And he, and he just starts, I mean, just taking them off at a clip. Mob boss after mob boss. They're in prison. They're getting, they're getting hammered by, by Batman. He is just taking things out. But we know that in the story that the Batman isn't enough. He, he can't do it on his own. Like as a lone ranger, as this mass vigilante, like he can't be the one that finally and fully puts down crime in the city. They need somebody else. So in walks, according to the Dark Knight trilogy, Harvey Dent. Right? The white knight. The shining knight in armor. He was, he was the missing piece of the puzzle. He's this d- uh, district attorney who, who comes in and is, is this man in the government who can be trusted. Who's going to carry out justice. Who's going to stand up to, the, to the, all the bad guys and to the, the intense crime in the city. We have this just official. Finally, he is the one that can carry justice forward in Gotham. He is the one that can kind of see it to its final and full end. But what happens to him? His girlfriend dies. He gets his face burned. And, and he starts getting a little crazy. He too is corrupted, and he goes on a killing spree. So this is bad. Here's Gotham's white knight, corrupted. I mean, the man that they would put forward as the face of justice and getting rid of crime and all that's good and right in the city, this is, this is the man, and he is corrupted. And so here's what happens. Batman covers for him. He takes on his own crime. But at that point, did, did, did Harvey Dent's crime, did it stop everything that had happened before that point? Did it, did it do away with all the good that Batman had done to rid the city of evil and organized crime? And we would say, no, it didn't undo all that stuff. But what it would have done is it would have undermined all the trust that the people were, were had and that was growing in the, in the officials, in the government, in the city, moving in the right direction. It would have halted momentum. It would encourage, again, crime. The, all the, the mob bosses could have come back in and said, see, this is your, your prime man and he's fallen too and we're getting back into this game. Well, I think likewise, Paul isn't concerned that his gospel and that his ministry was off or that all of his work for 14 years previous would have been completely undone. But what would have happened is if they don't get needed support from these in Jerusalem in this circumcision controversy is it could have halted momentum. It could have encouraged these false teachers. It could spread the false gospel. It could give speed even to a false gospel. And so their agreement with Paul on the matter of his ministry and the gospel was crucial from a practical standpoint. My guess is that Paul, should they have not agreed with his gospel and his ministry, Paul wouldn't have budged a bit. He would have probably taken a big blow with that, knowing that this is going to crush all that I've tried to build up, especially in these churches with Galatia. In terms of momentum I'm trying to gain with those who are 
are believing my gospel and trying to fight against a false gospel, but I guess, my guess is that he wouldn't have changed a thing. So it's not as if he's, he's like, oh, let's see if my gospel's right. I think he's pretty sure of that. He affirmed in chapter 1 the independence of his gospel, but by no means does he wish to be independent. Nobody should. Right? We, we know that our gospel comes from God, but we certainly don't want to be the only ones proclaiming it. And that's what Paul is, is trying to get support for. Like, I, here's the gospel I'm proclaiming, but surely I'm not on my own here. Surely there's some other people, the influential in Jerusalem, other people see them as apostles and influential. Surely they would agree with this gospel as well. And so he moves forward that they could get as much force as possible behind his ministry, behind his gospel, because he truly believes this is life and death. Life and death are at stake here in this gospel. And so he wants his gospel to speed ahead. And so he goes to Jerusalem. God directs him to Jerusalem. The influential there could add weight to Paul's ministry, to Paul's gospel, especially against his opponents in the churches of Galatia. There's this key component to his visit, and that was the case of Titus. See, Paul says in verse 3, Even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Now here's a sledgehammer argument against the opponents of Paul in the churches of Galatia. Titus was a Greek. He was a Gentile. He was uncircumcised. He had converted to Christianity, believed in the gospel, and now he is an uncircumcised Gentile among the people of God. And he goes into the very heart of Jewish Christianity, into the very heart of people who are steeped in the Old Testament, who know, according to the Old Testament, that to be a part of the people of God, you have to be circumcised and observe the law. And he goes into the heart of that. Now, there's no doubt that in the middle of Jerusalem and all around, there are Christians all over that were debating the necessity of circumcision, the necessity of observing the law. We read in Acts chapter 15, in verse 1, that some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. This was out there. 15 verse 5 says, Some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to, to circumcise them in order to keep them in the people of God. They need to have the law of Moses kept in order to be accepted as the people of God. And so in this place where, where Paul goes with Titus, there's ongoing debate, and into this debate walks an uncircumcised Greek. And what happens? He's not forced to be circumcised. In other words, the influential in Jerusalem agreed with Paul. They said what Paul has done in relation to Titus and, and how he's walking out this gospel and carrying it out is right. The circumcision is not required in order to be a part of the people of God. The circumcision isn't required for salvation. This means in order to be a part of the people of God, you don't have to observe the law. You don't have to be circumcised. You have to believe in Jesus. That's what he's agreeing to. That's what they're agreeing to here. So the ramifications here are huge. And this is a sledgehammer against the case that the Galatian opponents had brought up. This is massive for relations with these false brothers. In verse 4, Paul goes on to say, Yet because of false brothers who were secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so they might bring us into slavery. And so Paul, once again in verse 4, he's drawing a line here, the same line that he drew in chapter 1, that those who require circumcision for salvation or acceptance before God are false brothers. Shots fired, right? Right at his opponents. These are false brothers. If you're going to require circumcision, then you're going against the gospel of God. 
They're false brothers. And their gospel sounds really good. It doesn't seem like in, 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 the, in the book of Galatians that we see any sort of pushback against what they think of Jesus. Paul has this high view of Jesus as he gives in the introduction of the book of Galatia, Galatians. It doesn't seem like there's pushback there. They would have proclaimed, it seems, a, a great view of Jesus. They would have lifted him up and said, this is the Son of God. He's the Son of Man. He's perfect in all of his dealings. Paul would have agreed. And then they would say on top of that, that uh, we also need to do a few more things. They believe in this Jesus, but, but also do a few more things. And they're very biblical things. Right? Read the Old Testament. That's all we're doing. We're just taking the Old Testament and saying, like, God said this. That's clear. So let's just practice that. Yes, we believe Jesus is Messiah. Yes, we believe all these things about Jesus. We're just going to keep this as well. And if you do that, then you're in. But requiring circumcision... We're requiring observance to the law, or any law, it doesn't matter what the law is, if you require it for right standing with God, what Paul says here is that it enslaves. Here's why it enslaves, is that no one can keep the law. What's clear in the Old Testament is God gives forth the law. Even if you summed it up and love God with all that you are, love others as you love yourself, like right there, we're all leveled. Can't do it. And so if we say you have right standing before God, that you need to keep the law, then we know that we can amass a good enough record in order to be right before God. We can't be acceptable before God. We either fall short and are full of guilt, or we, we, we maybe make some achievable laws on top of these that give us a false sense of pride and assurance. Both of those are slavery. Both of them are deadly. It doesn't matter if it's circumcision it doesn't matter if it's this is the kind of clothes you need to wear. It doesn't matter what we come up with. If we add it on to the gospel, we are saying that you can achieve standing with God by what you do. And Paul says that enslaves you. So no, the gospel, according to Paul, says something much different than what the Galatian opponents were saying. The gospel, as one says, the gospel is this, that Jesus has amassed a perfect record for us. And when we believe in him, he gives it to us. We don't amass a record on our own. We believe in Jesus, and he gives his record to us. And faith in this Jesus is the only foundation in our standing before God. And faith in Jesus is, is the gospel that brings freedom. Freedom now from the penalty of sin. Because it was poured out and accepted in full Freedom from the power of sin that we were enslaved to. Now in Christ Jesus, by His grace that is flowing to us that we did not deserve, we can now say no to sin. Freedom from the guilt that inevitably comes from trying to live under the law. Freedom from this false sense of pride and assurance that we get when we think that we've achieved so much before God. Now, instead, with this perfect record that Jesus has given to us, now we can live out of our acceptance Instead of for acceptance. And it's like moving from, from treading water in the middle of the ocean. Just gasping to keep your head above the water. Just gasping for each breath just to stay afloat. To jumping into a speedboat. Where you're cruising along. Not worrying about air because you're fully in. And this is Paul's gospel. He won't budge from it. Not even for a second. So the truth of it could be preserved. As he goes on to say in verse 5. To them we do not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. 
There would have been immense pressure for Paul to cave. He probably could have been a lot more popular with a lot of more people if he would have caved in here and said, okay, let's keep Jesus and you can do this. That's all right. There would have been immense pressure from all over parts, different parts of the world, from Jerusalem, from the church in Galatia, to cave on this issue. But Paul's conviction holds him. His love for others holds him and is displayed here when he says, I wouldn't give in for a moment because I want to preserve the truth for what? For you. For you. Paul can't remain neutral toward his opponents or their gospel and preserve the gospel truth for others. It's more than just Paul and his view of the gospel. He's saying, I'm, I'm battling for you. I'm battling for everybody that could hear this gospel, that they would hear its truth. Upholding the truth of the gospel, proclaiming it and practicing it with clarity is about more than just us. It's about more than just Paul. So if we accept any additions or subtractions to the gospel, we can either preserve or obscure the truth of the gospel to other people. So there are ripples that are going to go out from our gospel or our false gospel that could enslave or could free. There's no neutral ground. We can't say, well, you know what, it's acceptable to, to do what they say. I believe in Jesus, and, and I guess it's acceptable to be circumcised too. That's acceptable. I mean, we don't think it's best, but okay, we'll let it slide by. No, there's freedom in the gospel or there's enslavement outside of the gospel. Those are the options and no neutral ground in the middle there. And so the question is, are we willing to stand on the truthfulness of the gospel, no matter the pressure, no matter the acceptance that we think we're going to get or not get from other people according to what they think of the gospel? Upholding the truthfulness of the gospel, defending its authority and proclaiming it with clarity is one of the most practical ways we can be for others. And so we must be absolutely stubborn here. One who can't move on this gospel, can't budge here. We can budge on a lot of things, not here. We have to resolve to preserve this. We have to resolve to, to know the, the, the truthfulness of what this is. And if we, if we budge, if, if we're not stubborn in this area, then we're actually doing something that could be of great harm to others as well. So Titus's case, it helps us, helped Paul. All the influential in Jerusalem, they all agree. Titus doesn't need to be circumcised. Paul's gospel has authority. He was right. Faith alone justifies. It's not by your, your work and not by your working in the law. It's not by your circumcision. Faith alone justifies you. And so not only did the case of Titus tip in favor of Paul's gospel, but the influential in Jerusalem, they, they fully endorse him, verse 6. And from those who seem to be influential, what they are makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. This is an interesting line that Paul has to walk here, and I like what one commentator said, that the argument here is delicately handled. For on the one hand, Paul can't compromise his gospel by granting that the Jerusalem apostles have ultimate authority. But on the other hand, their ratification of his gospel functions as a powerful rebuttal of the view of the Judaizers, Judaizers in Galatia. So here's what he's trying to balance. Like, I don't want to give them too much authority and weight because the gospel is our authority, God's our authority. But I also need to tell you, like, they have a lot of authority, and we need to listen to them too. All right, so he's walking that line, and for Paul, final authority resides in the gospel. He says, if I or an angel or even Peter, if they come and they preach in the gospel, let them be accursed. But the influential in Jerusalem, they, they did far from being overexerting their authority. Instead, they endorse fully Paul's gospel. And it goes on to say, on the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, 
For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go on to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So likely Paul's opponents in Galatia had said, you know, once again, that's, this is Paul's, Paul's gospel. He's distorted it from the gospel that's being proclaimed in Jerusalem. We know better. And so instead, those in Jerusalem, they, 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 would, they would say different. And Paul says, no, I went to Jerusalem, and here's what they did. They didn't add anything to my gospel. And in fact, they fully endorsed my gospel. They gave us the right hand of fellowship. They said that I'm on an equal plane essentially with Peter. If you think Peter, you're going to hold him up in his gospel to the circumcised, then you've got to hold my gospel up to the uncircumcised because that's what Peter did. So if you're going to lift up Peter, I will lift up Peter too. They recognize the authority of Paul's gospel and the authority of his ministry to the uncircumcised, saying what he is doing is right. And we're going to give him the right hand of fellowship to continue on in this. And so the pillars in Jerusalem affirm this message. Same message. Same message to the Jews. Same message to the Gentiles. It's faith alone. It's not two different gospels. It's two different contexts. And the unchanging in gospel applies to both. That's what they said. We're, we're going mostly to the Jews. You're going mostly to the Gentiles. The gospel remains the same. That's not to say that Peter didn't have a ministry to the Gentiles. We saw that in Acts chapter 10. He goes to Cornelius. and He, he has a ministry to Gentiles. It's not to say that Paul didn't have a ministry to the Jews. What did he do in most towns he went to? He went and preached the synagogues first. And then he went out from there. It's not to say that they have exclusive ministries like Paul, stay away from the circumcised. Peter, stay away from the uncircumcised. Let's just keep this. No, they're saying like you have some spheres of influence that God seems to have been given to you. Run faithfully along those veins. God is giving you those things. And so like your primary focus can be there because this is the ministry that God has laid before you. Continue in it because the gospel is the same. Peter would have said that if Paul's gospel would have been off. Paul wouldn't have said the same thing to Peter if his gospel would be off. We'll see what he'll say to Peter if his gospel's off in the next chunk of verses that we'll handle next week. But the pillars did make one request. He ends in, in verse 10. It says, Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Now, now this isn't new. It wasn't new to Paul. Paul was already working for the relief of the saints in Jerusalem. You read about that in his other letters. He cared about making sure that the, the Gentile believers abroad would also help take care of the, the Jerusalem believers that were poor and, and under intense persecution and even famine and they needed relief. Paul was already setting about that work to relieve the poor. So, so why does Paul add this request to the end? Doesn't it seem like they're adding on or that Paul maybe was off here? But I think Paul adds this request because it shows the unity they share. That, that their gospel flows out to more than just their thinking. That it's flowing out to their living and how they're handling themselves in the gospel. And it shows not only do they share the same gospel, but Paul was eager to do the very same things that Peter and the apostles and the influential in Jerusalem were eager to do. To relieve the poor, especially these Jewish believers, showing what does it show? That the Gentiles will give for the relief of these Jewish believers. What does that show? Unity. That the gospel is working out in their lives so much so that they love each other even though they're very different from one another. That the gospel is the tie that binds them together. The gospel works itself down into how they treat one another. That sounds obvious, but it has to be said that this is true. That if the gospel is not working its way down into how we're loving and treating one another, even people and especially people that are different than us then maybe we don't trust in the same gospel. 
Paul says they, they, they wanted to add that I take care of the poor. That was, I was eager to do that. So he's giving further force and speed to his gospel saying this, this is something that we are already eager to do. There's unity here that has been shown even before we even started this process after 14 years. Gives more speed to the gospel message. And so now at the end, verse 10, we have the full weight of these Jerusalem pillars. The influential of the church in Jerusalem. We have Titus's case decided decisively in favor of the gospel that Paul had been proclaiming for 14 years. And we have the same goals and the same desires from both camps. And so the Galatian churches and these Galatian opponents and all hearers and readers of this gospel can't say as they look at chapter 1, well, that's just Paul being Paul. Because Paul's gospel and Paul's ministry are authoritative. The Jerusalem pillars give authority to them. They recognize that Paul is doing the work of God. That the gospel he proclaimed is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That they agree with it and give full weight behind it. So the question is, is, is do we recognize its authority? If you're an unbeliever, do, do you recognize that, that there is a gospel that is true? That you will go one way or another on facing this gospel. You are either believe. And you will have life with God based upon your belief in Jesus. Or you will not believe. And you will have to face the judgment and wrath of God. It has authority there. Even if you don't recognize it. Believers in our lives. Are we recognizing the authority of the gospel? Likely we wouldn't say like, nope, I don't agree with Paul's gospel. But we live that way. And the practical outworkings of it. Are we, are we depending fully on the gospel for our right standing with God? Or do we think our quiet time adds something to it? Are we, are we depending upon the gospel of Jesus Christ for our full acceptance with God or are we saying that also my perfect record at church does it too? Do we recognize the authority of this gospel that says you're only right standing with God? The only way that you can have acceptance before God is not what you do, but your faith in Jesus and what He has done. Are we adding to it? I guess another way of saying this is, is are you living in the freedom that, that, that the gospel brings? That you're fully accepted and out of that acceptance you live? Or are you living as a slave? Full of guilt or full of pride and false assurance? Brothers and sisters, we need to recognize the truth of the gospel. We need to live under its authority. We need to preserve its truthfulness. And if we're strayed from it at all, we need to return to it. And then live in freedom that that gospel brings. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your gospel that speaks unbelievably good news. That a sinner like me, who has given you the stiff arm and thought that I didn't need you at all with a head full of rocks and a heart full of stone, that you would come down and reach after me and pull me out of the mud and the mire and bring me into life. And God, we know, it's so clear in the scripture that that's not based upon anything that I have thought or done, but because of what Jesus has done for me. And I pray that all of those people who that has happened to would celebrate that fact as well. Thank you for that gospel. God, if there are those who have not yet believed in Jesus, I pray for them right now that faith would come in their hearing of this gospel. But God, continue to build your church. 
ready to stand, even if unpopular, upon the truthfulness of the Scripture, knowing what's at stake. And God, would you help us to be for others by being for your gospel? God, thank you for preserving it for us in your word that we might read about it, study it together. God, you're good. Amen. As the people of God, we get the sacred opportunity to have a meal together where we celebrate the gospel of Jesus Christ. That Jesus has come, that his life, death, and resurrection have actually saved. And we do that in the Lord's Supper where we're reminded of Jesus' body that was broken, of his blood that was poured out, that we might receive acceptance with God, that we might have forgiveness of sins and full reconciliation with the Holy God. And so if you're a believer, we encourage you, come and tear off a piece of bread, dip of the juice, and be reminded of your unity with God based upon not your work, but your faith in Jesus Christ. If you're not a believer, don't take this meal. Take Christ instead. He is your only hope for standing with God, for ever sharing anything with God. It's through Jesus. And so trust in Him for eternal life, and then take this meal next time. But if you're a believer, come and be encouraged by what Jesus has done on your behalf.